Y'all can talk about all these viruses. And that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Uwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. This episode of the People's War Radio Show is being recorded as the year 2020 nears an end, and most people in the U.S. are attempting to celebrate winter holidays in the midst of a pandemic. The Christmas holiday is declared a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, but most activities centered around a frenzied pursuit or aspiration to buy presents. In fact, All holidays serve a function of forging a national identity through shared observations of religious or patriotic events. The observation of Christmas in America is no different. Today we want to talk about the colonial roots of the Santa Claus myth and its origins in the Dutch traditions revolving around the characters Sinterklaas and Schwarze Piet, or Black Piet in English. We will be joined on the program by artists, activists, and educators, Angela Kinlaw, and a scribe called Quest. But first, we want to share a clip from a 2004 conversation between African People's Socialist Party Chairman Amalia Chatella and Peggy Burt, an African activist and journalist from Amsterdam, where she has been engaged in a campaign to stop the annual Center Class in Schwarze Piet Parade and Feast. Virtually every celebration uh, done uh, in this country and throughout Europe, uh, certainly since the 15th, 16th century, have been celebrations of uh, slavery and genocide. And uh, the reality is that there are no uh, innocent uh, holidays. Uh, Just like Thanksgiving, Christmas itself is origin in something that's not necessarily good for Africans and other oppressed people. And when I say Christmas, what I'm really talking about is not so much as the mythology that's associated with uh, the Son of God, of being born as much as Christmas as generally celebrated uh, having to do with gift giving and sharing and the emergence of this fantastic uh, character known as Santa Claus. In this country, the Santa Claus was born of the Dutch Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas was the patron saint of shipping in Holland. And uh, as you know, the first uh, captive, African captives to come to this country were brought by the Dutch And I would imagine the good ship Jesus upon which we were brought here was probably blessed by Santa Claus. You could say that we were a gift from Santa to America. I was in Amsterdam and uh, had an opportunity to experience a a Christmas parade. And the difference in Santa Claus there and Santa Claus here is that while in the U.S. the myth is that Santa Claus brings bad children coal, stick coal in their stockings instead of gifts, and the, and the bad children do not get gifts. In Holland, Santa Claus uh, travels with a servant whose name is Father Pete, or Black Pete, and Black Pete is the guy who, if the children are bad, he sticks them in, in sacks and takes them off uh, screaming and fighting and kicking to Spain. And I happen to be, uh, as I said, in in uh, Amsterdam where the Santa parade happened and it was incredible it was uh, more than 
than uh, most Africans here could even imagine. But there's this, this situation where you have all these uh, white people who have blackface. They wear blackface. They, they're like minstrels, like Al Jolson. And they are portraying uh, Swata Pete. And they wear clothes that are uh, similar to what Moors might have worn uh, who occupied Spain up until uh, the 15th century. And sometimes dancing and prancing in the streets. And sometimes they even wore fake dreadlocks. It was incredible to be an African standing there watching these minstrels, these white people in blackface, uh, marching down. And then, of course, uh, you had this uh, white man riding on a big white horse with a big cross on a, a hat that looks something like the, what the Pope might wear. And uh, he was the beneficent Santa Claus. And uh, Blackfeet Swatapeak was his servant. And so uh, I got into a sort of impromptu uh, debate with this woman who is called the, the mayor of central Amsterdam, who was trying to explain to me why it was all right for these white people uh, to be wearing this black face and why there was nothing wrong but it just as someone coming from the outside, uh, I, would, I might mistakenly uh, think that there was something bad about it. But the truth of the matter is that in Holland, uh, African people also, uh, many of them, find something terribly wrong uh, with this Santa Claus uh, Swata Pete combination and a campaign has uh, emerged where the Africans are, are struggling with the government of the Netherlands to do away with uh, Swata Peak. And I have on the line with me from Amsterdam, Peggy Burke, and I would like for her to join us in this discussion because the truth is that when we live uh, these isolated lives as African people in America or in other places, we come to think that our experiences are Af as Africans are peculiar to us. We don't understand that there's a universal oppression and ridicule for African people that, has, uh, that have come as a consequence of our being a captive people, our land and resources stolen from us. Sister Peggy, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Somali. Uh, Uhuru to all the listeners as well. You know, in presentations that I've done for years now, I've talked about Swata Pete and uh, Santa Claus and explaining the whole history of this phenomenon with uh, Santa Claus here in this country. But I was shocked to actually to see this phenomenon when I was in Amsterdam. And, and uh, uh, the first thing I saw earlier that day bef uh, at, the, uh, at the train station, because I came to Amsterdam from Eindhoven, and uh, was a child uh, in in one of the stores in the in the in the station who had on some kind of costume and and uh, a, a little, what looked like soot on her face and I, I thought uh, perhaps it has something to do with uh, Halloween uh, or some kind of Halloween thing and didn't pay that much attention to it until I got to this parade that was shocking. Uh, how is this thing being experienced? Uh, uh, well, you see, what happened is that they imposed this feast upon us, and even in countries like Suriname, where I come from, which used to be a, a, a Dutch colony, and in the Dutch Antilles, we were forced to celebrate this feast. This feast is against black people. It, it really puts black people down. I mean, if, if you listen to the songs that they're singing also uh, during this feast, uh, one, one sentence in a, in a song is, even though I'm black as the night, I still mean it right. 
<laughs> and uh, the the Swarte Piet, the Black Piet, is portrayed as a black man. It's all white men walking there, but they put black paint on their faces and they're dressed exactly as how the Moors were were portrayed. Um, uh, and and then they walk around with with this sack and and with uh, uh, something to hit children with, like a sort of stick to hit children with who have been bad throughout the year. And this white uh, uh, Santa is sitting on his horse. White horse. And on his white horse, dressed as a pope, you, you righteously said so. And then um, the black peeps, they have to do all the dirty work and they act like clowns and they make them speak Dutch on the television, for example, with a sort of Surinamese type of accent uh -huh. and pronouncing the words completely uh, wrong, like uh -huh. they're speaking a sort of pigeon Dutch. Uh -huh. And uh, um, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's really horrible. And in the schools, this feast is part of the school curriculum. So the children, whether they like it or not, they have to be part of this feast. Tell us about the feast. Of what, how, what does this feast consist of? Well, what happens is that um, um, in somewhere in November, like the middle of November, uh, Santa Claus comes from Spain, they say, with his black peat. <laughs> and in Spain, he has been monitoring how well the children have behaved themselves during the last year. And the children who have behaved themselves well, properly, will get presents, and the children who have behaved badly will be put in the sack, and they will be taken back to Spain with Sinterklaas. This is all fake, but this is the story. Mm. Now, what happens is that uh, the, all the shops are decorated with this white Santa and his black peat. They are walking around throughout the city, and um, people are buying presents on the 4th of December because it's Santa Claus' birthday on the 5th. Mm. And that's when he gives all the presents. He gives them on the 4th already. They call it Pakjesavond, which means a packet evening. Mm. And then there will be a knock on the door and there will be a Swarte Piet standing in front of the house with a whole bag full of presents for the children who live in that house. And, uh, I mean, at a certain age, children do realize that the presents come from their parents and not from this Sinterklaas. But I know children who are very afraid of this Swarte Piet element because they're afraid that they will be put in the sack and taken back to Spain. And uh, it's th that this, this is the, you know, the tenure of the feast. I was six years old when I came to live in the Netherlands. And we were one of the three black families in a whole area in the city because in, in the 1960s there weren't that many black people living here as they're living now. So from the minute Sinterklaas entered uh, the city, he, came, he comes with a ship, we were, m me and my brother and my uh, sisters were called Swarte Piet. Mm. And people were afraid of black... Children mm. were indeed afraid of black people because in all black people, mm. they would see Swarte Piet. You know, we, we experienced the, the, so much of the same thing here. In 1966, I uh, ended up with a five-year prison term because at the 
city hall in the city of St. Petersburg, Florida, where I where I, I grew up, uh, had an eight by four foot picture that caricaturized African people with huge pink lips that covered most of the face and uh, with arms that extended beyond their knees and what have you. And I ended up tearing that eight by four foot mural down from the wall of City Hall. And I was sentenced to five years in prison. And just a couple of months ago, in October, in fact, some white woman had in her yard a caricature of an African an effigy of an African being lynched, hanging from uh, from a noose on a in a very well made scaffold in her yard, and wow. uh, I tore it down. I went into her yard and I tore it down, and it was a life size effigy, and I was condemned for that. And and people on the city council here was wondering why they didn't put me in prison and and uh, what have you. And of course they would have put me in prison were it not for the fact that we have a pretty serious uh, political base that um, would have made it would have complicated it for them but the reality is that they always say well it, it didn't mean anything you know they, ne- they yeah. never meant anything by it for me what do they say when when we oppose against the caricature of Swatapit they say the Swatapit is black because he comes through the chimney <laughs> so they turn it around so that oh all of a sudden he's black because he comes through the chimney and what sort of big hoop-de-doo you're making of this because uh, that's why he's black but uh, it's not true because if you listen to the songs you know why he's black and then of course there's history itself i mean at one juncture holland was uh, dominated by spain Absolutely. And, and then Spain, of course, uh, was dominated uh, by, by the, the Moors. Moors, the Africans. So uh, there is the history that they're trying to cover up. That was African People's Socialist Party Chairman Amalia Chatella talking with Peggy Burke, an African activist and journalist from Amsterdam, where she has been engaged in a campaign to stop the annual Sinter class and Schwarze Piet parade and feast. And now let's move to today's guest. Angela Kinlaw is an activist, educator, and agitator in New Orleans. She is a leader in Take Em Down NOLA, a collective of activists fighting against monuments and other public representations of the colonial representation of white power and African people. Also a leader in Take Em Down NOLA, a scribe called Quest, a.k.a. Michael Quest Moore, is a poet, educator, actor, playwright, activist, and organizer in that order. Welcome, Angela, and a scribe called Quest. A scribe called Quest. Is it okay if I call you Quest? Yes, sir. Thanks for that. Quest, you have traveled internationally. How did you first come in contact with Swarta Pete? Well, I learned about the Swarta Pete ritual, tradition, what have you, by way of word of mouth, basically. There's a sister from New Orleans who... Uh, I believe either traveled out there, lived out there for a minute and was working on a documentary about it. And that was like over a decade ago. And that was the first time I heard about it. And of course it grossed me out, but you know, it just reflected more of the same of just uh, that whole uh, doctrine of misinformation of the false ideology of white supremacy, masking the actual white toxicity rooted in a sense of white inferiority um, and just the fetishization of blackness by way of this, this, uh, this ritual where I have come into more direct contact with it internationally was in Colombia. I went there last year and blackface is also universally performed there. I would say almost universally on a yearly basis in their big carnival tradition. And so that 
mirrored exactly what we've experienced in New Orleans because blackface is also practiced here in our carnival tradition uh, by black people. Differences in Colombia uh, is black people. It's the brown people who I believe are um, designated as Zumba, which is the, the derivative of the indigenous folks down there. And it's white presenting Colombians and all of them wear this blackface in a way that they say is paying homage and giving some type of, um, I don't know, compliment to blackness. But obviously it's the same old fetishistic, parasitic, uh, ugly misrepresentation of who we actually are. And it's still rooted in the same tradition of where blackface comes from originating in the United States in the 1820s. And I'll talk more about that later. But all that to say, when I saw it in Colombia, it definitely mirrored everything else that I've seen and heard about it from the Suarte Pete tradition to the blackface Zulus of New Orleans and to the uh, tradition there, as well as a tradition that I, I don't know the name of, but also exists, I see it in Bahia in uh, Brazil. And what all of those different locales have in common is that all three of them were major ports for slavery for different uh, colonial uh, states. And we can say Colombia was Spain, New Orleans was Spain and France, and Bahia was Portugal. And these were the number one locales for slavery. They are also the locales for some of the greatest uh, socioeconomic disparity for Black people to this day, still operate like plantations to this day. And all of them have extremely hyper-violent police states that are murderous against Black people. Yeah, Uru, thanks for that, Quest, because I know we're sort of jumping ahead just a little bit, but another place where we, we see this tradition is in Cape Town. I think they call it the Coon Parade or something like that, mm-hmm. in which the people, they dress up with blackface and top hats and canes, and they go second lining and stuff like that down the streets. So it is, a as we'll talk about later on in the discussion today, it's about that historical going back all the way back to the uh, 16th century and really the rise of modern Europe by way of shipping and the slave and, and the enslavement of African people. However, it also is related to the late 19th century, early 20th century with the rise of U.S. imperialism uh, by way of the control of international shipping. Just some short history. The Netherlands, like other countries of Western Europe, arose in reaction to the Black Moorish presence in Europe. In the 16th and 17th century, following the establishment of the Dutch East India Company, the Netherlands grew into a world power through their brutal assault on Africa, the indigenous people of the Pacific, and the indigenous people in the Americas. In what ways have you noticed that Swartje Piet and similar images represent the relationship that the Netherlands had with African people, especially in terms of the slave trade and colonialism? And, and let me note that, you know, of course, we're not talking about trade. In the, we're talking about theft. We're talking about rape. We're talking about a brutal assault on Africa. Right. I'm glad you you mentioned that because the other piece that uh, I left out a second ago was that, you know, the Netherlands were among the top five when you're talking about the the brutal slave trade. So we already mentioned mentioned France, Spain and Portugal, of course. In addition, you have London, you have, oh, we have England, you have the UK, and then you have the Netherlands. And those top five were the ones doing the the looting and and the thievery of black bodies and propagating the transatlantic slave trade and even... Um, at the same time, uh, sowing the seeds for the colonization of Africa and uh, everything leads to the Berlin Conference, um, you know, in 1888, I believe it was, 
at the at the height of or the beginning of the imperialist age. And so it's like you were saying, all of this propaganda, all of this symbolism is put out there to basically uh, wage the, the psychological warfare necessary to kind of soften the minds of uh, the colonized as well as their own proletariat, their own working class to shape their worldview about the people that they were doing this brutal inhumanity to. And so if they can, you know, make us look like less than human, if they can satirize us and they can parody our whole existence, then we can be equated by law to less than human. Thanks for that, because as we know, generally it's told that capitalism produced imperialism, but the truth is that the imperial imperialism, the colonization of African African people dating back to the 15th century, is in fact the thing that produced modern Europe, European wealth, and uh, the growth of capitalism. So thanks for that. Angela, it's great to have you on the People's War radio show today. Um, your decades of activism have definitely been an inspiration to Matsumela and myself, and I just wanted to really salute you for the work that you've been doing in New Orleans. Now, I wanted to ask you the following question. Center class is the Dutch name for Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors and merchants. Considering the previous question and analysis, what ways do you think Sinterklaas, Schwarze Piet, and the commercial Christmas holiday in general exposes the parasitic relationship between European colonialism and Africa? Yeah, this is a, a powerful question because when I think about everything that we're speaking about today in a historical context, the first thing that happens for me is really thinking about how it plays out and impacts the conditions of our lives today. Um, and so when I think about this uh, parasitic relationship, if you will, I think to myself, when you have characters like Zwart Pete, um, they play dual roles. They play layered roles. Because when you're dealing with a brutal assault upon African people, you can be assured that there's going to be a psychological terror and assault that accompanies that. And it makes sense when you think about it, because, you know, our people have been exploited not only in terms of our land, in terms of our labor, in terms of our relationship to those things and how we see ourselves in the world, but we have to have a surrounding uh, superstructure that pushes illusions. And I want to lean in on the illusions part, because the way in which we are constantly being exploited um, often think about what that means for us as we even think about transitions that happen in terms of um, the exploitation. So when we think about moving, if you will, or transitioning from chattel enslavement to even wage enslavement, it puts us in a situation right now where, whether it be the politics, the culture, the media, the religion, the ways in which it, it's perpetuated through our education and families, all of these images Get, a, get us to the point in time where we're actually complying with the exploitation and oppression we're experiencing. So not only are our people not benefiting from the material conditions that come as a result of the labor that we provide, the little low wages we do get if we do get, now we feel compelled to spend that, to break our neck spending money we don't have being a part of a culture that we have inherited but is not ours. And we get to the point in time where we fight back against it. Why? Because we don't want people to mess with our traditions. We don't want people to mess with our memories. And we definitely don't want them to mess with our entertainment for fun 
to escape from the hardship that we're experiencing on a regular basis. So this season around the holidays, Christmas, preparing us for the end of a calendar year, puts us in the best position psychologically to prepare ourselves for the hardship of the next year. We think about it the way we think about a weekend or the time off, or we think about even here in New Orleans, the, uh, the festivities that happen on a Sunday. It gets our, it, it gives us just enough breathing room as we exist in those moments to be able to say, how do we prepare ourselves for the hardship to, to come? And we're at a point now where we're saying, how do we use this time to prepare ourselves for changing the conditions that lead to our trauma in the first place? Oh, Angela. <laughs> Angela Thank Kinlaw. you. Thank you. Angela. I'm so happy you're on this show, Angela. Just to, for clarity, uh, in 1997, I first met Angela Kinlaw. Angela Kinlaw was the Black Student Union president at my college. I came in there. I told that. I told Angela, I said, uh, I'm going to be the Black Student Union president at this school. Yeah. And she looked at me probably like, who's this bold kid right here? But uh, yeah, I followed in Angela's footsteps. So thanks for that, Angela. Sure did. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. The Netherlands is right across the channel from England. In 2017, Princess Michael of Kent, a cousin of the Queen of England, wore a Blackamoor brooch to a Christmas event attended by Meghan Markle in a clear sign of the British royal family's disapproval of Prince Harry's marriage to an African woman. The blackface depiction of African people on the Blackamoor brooch is remarkably similar to the Schwartz Pete image. What do you two make of that? Angela or Quest? Oh, yeah, I'll jump in on this one. I, You know, it's so interesting to me because... The ways in which we see images, particularly um, images of African people um, that can be utilized, commercialized and sold back to us in so many ways. Um, it is really it's, it's a really interesting dynamic because, you know, on one hand, when we think about, you know, just the way our uh, black imagery or culture um, has been used for consumption. It's been used um, and commodified. I mean, you know, I, I, I accelerate and I think about all the ways in which even here in New Orleans, we're seeing that, you know, blackface on the ground as people are, you know, uh, talking about it, resisting and fighting back. It oftentimes is used in ways where people aspire to have these things, possess these things, exaggerate these things, make money off of these things. And at the same time, for us as a people, you know, we're so inclined and desirous of seeing representation. And a lot of the representation is truly ours to have, but we're not benefiting from the ways in which that representation um, is being pushed out, not only materially, but ideologically, in terms of the ways in which we're thinking about ourselves, the ways in which we're putting out our own narratives, the way in which we're putting out anything that is designed to really elevate our own consciousness and change our own conditions. And so, you know, anytime even something that is originally ours is taken and modified and then put back into the world, you know, for us to consume, sometimes not even for us to consume because we're not even able to afford the things that have our own images, whether they be uh, morphed or whether they be modified or changed, we're still caught up in the, in the, in the cycle. And so when I think about this, 
it often brings up a lot of uh, a lot of questions for folks because you know on one hand you want to see images of yourself right you you are so glad to see someone who is considered to be a white who's representing um, an image of blackness at the same time using it to exploit and commodify you know our very existence so it's problematic on a lot of levels unless it is coming from black people for black people and having an impact you know on our lives and helping to move us forward uh, from the per- perspective of our own narrative not something that we've inherited from someone else. Oh yeah, thanks for that. I really appreciate your response because as you note, this colonial image of the blackamore is clearly a political weapon. It's a political weapon that has circulated the European colonial world and has served as a justification for the parasitic and exploitative relationship that European colonizers, European colonialism and capitalism has with African people, namely the African working class around the world. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Angela Kinlaw and a scribe called Quest. Uhura, Angela, I really appreciate uh, the analysis that you're bringing to this discussion. And so we're going to continue with um, this same discussion about this exploitation. We understand that during the holiday season, working class African families continue to break their backs to buy their children's gifts. It's noted that this season is, in fact, not a season for cheer for working class African people, but instead a spike of depression and myriad forms of horizontal violence persist. The current Christmas holiday can really be traced to the late 19th century rise in American imperialist production. Can you talk about any links that you've noted between Christmas and capitalism itself? Yes, it's so interesting because, you know, when we were talking about Zwart Pete earlier, um, it's really interesting because you've got, you know, St. Nicholas and a sidekick, Zwart Pete, right? who is pretty much the representation of the terror upon the children when they do not comply and do what they're asked to do to to get the gifts that Santa is to bear. But when you think about Santa Claus and you think about Christmas and you think about the ways in which Christmas is really perpetuated, even in relationship to the religion, you got Christ all up in the mix. And here you have this perpetuation that it's connected directly to the idea of giving, to the idea of doing good to and for others, to the idea of breaking our necks to do for good, good for for people and as African people, particularly as poor and working class people, despite all of the hardships and the ways in which we've been exploited and oppressed, we are constantly the givers. We're constantly the people who are donating time, energy, and resources to care for each other, despite the fact that the banks, uh, large businesses, industries have taken all of the profit, stolen all of the profit from our labor. Here we are again, breaking our necks to support one another in the name of what we might call mutual aid, which we do very well as black people. But capitalism feeds on, you know, our own deprivation, right? It it soothes our desires when we have an opportunity to have what per, what's perceived as a break, an opportunity for us to 
dwell in the illusions of what's possible. So we get to think about the ways in which we're giving. We get to think about and justify in our minds all of the things that we haven't been able to do for each other or for our children, whether it be in terms of time or resources. So we will spend money we don't have, even if it means to go into debt, trying to compensate for the hardships of the years that we have, the, the year that we've had. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Because it's important to note that the current form of the Christmas holiday really emerged in the late 19th century with the rise of U.S. empire, the overproduction of goods, and the need to really spread those goods throughout U.S. colonies abroad and other European colonies abroad. So as you all noted so very well, it's not really a coincidence that Africans are being roped into this system of overproduction and excess spending and things like that. So Quest, blackface is often referred to as quote unquote racist, but in fact, it is more than that. It is the ideological justification for the colonial relationship between Europeans and Africans, as we've discussed. Blackface, in fact, can be traced back to the 19th century minstrel character, Jim Crow. Who was Jim Crow? Also, what is the relationship between Jim Crow the character and Jim Crow laws? Great question. Jim Crow was actually Jump Jim Crow originally. And it was a song that, you know, our, our ancestors enslaved Africans sang on plantations. And it was stolen, Elvis Presley, basically by uh, a white guy named Thomas Dartmouth Daddy Rice. And he popularized the song, took it all around. And that was the beginning of minstrelsy, basically in 1828. And from there, it goes on to be the agate prop of, you know, white so-called supremacy. Like they use this to denigrate, which is another word I hate to use because it's literally has the etymological breakdown of also being anti-black. You got the, the N-I-G-E-R inside of that word. It literally uh, means to uh, downgrade something uh, correlated to blackness but degrading Black people basically by way of menstrual tradition by the 1880s. And again, I'm really appreciating the synchronicity, the, the cohesiveness coming up in this conversation. Every time we go back to the 80s, we're talking about, okay, we're about 15 years removed from the Civil War. We're about five years, 10 years after the Reconstruction period. And now we're in an era of global capitalism um, reaching uh, of course, the highest height is seen there to four, but it's also the beginning of imperialism on um, a financial level. And that's why you have that surplus of goods like you were talking about that, you know, helps ramp up the Christmas tradition. All of this stuff goes back to feeding our oppressors and feeding their vice grip on the masses. What also happens during the 1880s is uh, minstrel shows are uh, the number one form of entertainment worldwide. So you're talking about before black people ever got to step on a global scene and represent or misrepresent ourselves by way of rap, hip hop, rock and roll, R&B, jazz, all of the beautiful genres that we've made of art that have shaped global consciousness. We were already having global consciousness shaped in our name and in our face, but without us. And it was misrepresentative of who we were. And, you know, this is in the 1880s. You had like 250 mission companies already torn the U.S., and at least 97 of them by 1915 and 1928 were still going. So that lets you know that from that, like that 40 year period, this is what our, our calling card was basically. And that's how you get blackface all over the planet. That's why you got it uh, in South America, in Europe. A lot of those touring companies ended up overseas misrepresenting blackness. 
And at the same time, what's happening during this this era is Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which is called the Jim Crow law. And so literally, again, symbols reflecting systems, life imitating art. You have this propaganda that's been around for about 60, 70 years by the time they start making laws to reify what was already in place during slavery, post-slavery. So even though there were no longer black codes, uh, you still had the convict leasing system to come up to recreate slavery by another name. But, but behind the scenes, you had, of course, you know, 4,000 lynchings of black bodies from 1877 to 1950. And then you had the litigation that basically delegitimized us and, you know, dehumanized us, devalued us and put us literally at the back of the bus and so-called separate, but we knew it was never equal. And that's what, you know, created the, 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 the environment for us to continue to be abused like we were all the way up until the uh, plantation uprising that we call the civil rights movement occurred in the 60s or started in the 50s. So um, that whole period is framed by, you know, Jim Crow law. But what was happening parallel to that was, of course, the propaganda that was spreading globally to, you know, have us misrepresented as less than what we were or not who we were. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Because we know Jim Crow began as a cultural phenomenon in 1832. Minstrelsy arose alongside the abolitionist tradition, as you know, really as a cultural response to African struggles for freedom and independence. Whereas earlier images of Africans, even in colonial media, were as defiant, Jim Crow and other minstrel images promoted Africans as dependent on white society, colonialism. We see it rapidly spreading in the 19th century from the human zoos that existed all throughout white North American and European society to the colonial images of the new colonial subjects of the United States, virtually wherever the U.S. went the way through which it justified its colonization and control of those people was to actually paint those people literally as minstrel figures, whether it be the Piccaninny children or the violent brutes, or once they finally are controlled, the happy Sambos. We see it over and over and over again. So thanks for really showing us that history. And I really want to appreciate the way y'all are breaking down the specifics of these colonial traditions and how they are directly correlated with our oppression and exploitation. Basically, the more of these traditions, you know, the more it adds to our oppression and our exploitation. So, Angela, we began talking about Zwarte Pete in this show, and many liberal anti-racist activists have seized upon Zwarte Pete as an exceptional character, but that is not true, is it, Angela? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, we've been having a lot of conversations about those who declare themselves as anti-racist. Because, right. you know, when we when we talk about the conditions that we're dealing with and going back to the work we do with Take Them Down NOLA, making direct connections between symbols and systems, is that we we can't even believe or take your word for you to be an anti-racist if you're not anti-capitalist, because capitalism is anti-Black. If you're not anti-imperialist, you can't declare yourself as being anti-racist because imperialism 
targets, oppress, exploits Black people globally. So these things are connected and we can't separate them out and just pretend like because you are in proximity to Black people, because you refuse to use the N-word, because, 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 unless you are doing the work to counter a system that fundamentally and inherently exploits and oppress, then you can't consider yourself to be anti-racist because those things come together. And all of the people who care, um, all of the white people who claim to be anti-racist, who say that this is important to them, are not are also not making the connection that the white that this same system doesn't care about white working class people either. And if that that energy of being anti-racist were really spent directly connecting to all of the white working class people who have fallen for the lies as well, our material condi- the material conditions of working class people around the world would shift and would shift at an accelerated rate. But as Black people, because we know we can't wait for that. Um, I was also sitting here just thinking about this whole conversation around the holidays and Christmas. And at the end of the day, Christmas ends up being like this big end of year sale for overpriced goods produced as surplus from our stolen labor for the profit of the rich only to take back the low wages uh, that we've barely earned along the year. So you exploit us on the front end by stealing profit, stealing the surplus, stealing the labor. And then you exploit us on the back end with the little wages we do have as we break our neck to spend it and give it right back to you. Thanks for that, Angela. Uh, One thing that uh, we do have to recognize, I think, is the way that the white working class around the world have contributed to these demeaning traditions, though. They have taken value from it. Uh, Historians have shown that uh, white working class people, such as the Irish and others, absolutely love the minstrel shows. They spent their hard money to attend these minstrel shows regularly because it's through the minstrel shows that they themselves actually gained access and membership in the white European nation. Uh, So as we're calling upon the white working class to unite with African people, Uh, it does seem important that they also reckon with the way in which they have participated in this tradition. Yeah, this is good. Let me start off by saying this. As we think about representation, as we think about uh, conforming or in trying to adhere to whiteness and to become more in alignment with that whiteness, we reject everything that is humane about our existence on the planet, no matter who or where we may be. And so when we think about these images that exist, we're seeing across college campuses. I mean, if you, if, if, if you were just to Google and run a list of every college institution and their mascot, That alone is enough for people to rise up and say um, the ways in which there is a narrative, particularly around indigenous cultures and indigenous uh, representation, how that is used and abused in serious ways. And we see that perpetuated, you know, with the NFL and how they have used racial images and and slurs as mascots in the level of fight. And that's why we, we say that the connection between symbols and systems is so important, because if we will comply with these kind of symbols that we know are intended to degrade and exploit and oppress the mind of our people, then there's something to be said about how much more we're going to adhere to the systems. 
you know, the work of Take Em Down NOLA is really here for the purpose of removing all symbols uh, to white supremacy, which we know as that false ideology that exists around the supremacist mindset, which is a toxic mindset. And we do it for the purpose of really addressing the issues around um, racial and economic justice and the work that needs to be done there, making that connection between um, symbols and systems. And so when we began this work, even though it was challenging for people to really even understand what the value of it was when we're talking about symbols, it became an entry point to really contend with these deeper issues. So when we started this work and we were in the effort of organizing and pushing back for the removal of the so-called Battle of Liberty Monument, which had the words white supremacy on the placard, the Robert E. Lee statue, Jeff Davis and Beauregard, for those to come down, we meant it when we said all symbols to white supremacy. Here, the same way we've seen that contention or the issue around what Pete, we've seen it here with blackface and how it's been used with the local, a beloved organization, the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, because people have again said, you know, this is a part of our traditions. This is a part of our memories. This is a part of our childhood. But when we actually pull back the veil and talk about the history and share primary documents and share the information for what it is, people are able to conclude and make decisions. Yeah, Quest, you know what's a trip is that uh, Louis Armstrong was the king of the Zulus. And for that reason, he was featured in, it must have been one of the magazines, Jet or something like that, Jet or Ebony with blackface. And the rest of Africans in the U.S. were like, you know, a collective WTF but probably in the 1950s form of it. And that is one time in which it did seem that Africans in New Orleans had begun, and people in New Orleans overall had begun to reckon with this. However, when Armstrong had first gone to Africa during the time of decolonization as a part of these U.S.-sponsored jazz tours, People met him off the plane and they even had on top hats and canes and blackface. So it really showed a way through which uh, U.S. imperialism and this colonial imagery of African peoples through blackface had found its way even into uh, Africa as a form of almost like international discourse. So um, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, glad you brought that up because that, again, threads together this theme of this being bigger than just a symbol, a visual. So we can go all the way back to the, the roots of it. Back in the 1880s, as imperialism is uh, launching its global project and ramping up capitalism, what's happening at home in New Orleans um, at Mardi Gras festivals is back to your point about the white working class supporting this tradition of blackface and menstruacy and what have you. Three out of four um, Mardi Gras costumes were blackface for white people. Right. And so it was so pervasive at that point that this was just that deeply ingrained in the culture. And so when we talk about um, 1909, when the Zulus first launched themselves, they do it by the inspiration of a minstrel show. And at the time, um, as I was saying before, you know, black people were performing in blackface in these minstrel shows because that's the only way that they could perform that kind of work, any kind of theater work. And so it was a minstrel show by a group called The Smart Set, and it was called There Never Was and Never Will Be a King Like Me. And it was a satirization of the actual Zulu people. And so um, as far later as the 60s, when, you know, actual 
African Zulu folks are asked about how they feel about Zulus being in blackface, they are offended and they don't know why they're being misrepresented that way. And yet what the Zulus claim to be doing when they first put that blackface on was to be making a satire of the satire. And so, you know, one can zoom out and understand how working class black folks that started this, they were longshoremen and working class black folks. You know, this is all around them and they didn't have a lot of options. It's still, uh, in, in my opinion, not excusable. You know, at the same time, you have people like Cyril Briggs, you know, um, you know, working towards creating the African blood brotherhood. You have Marcus Garvey, you have Ida B. Wells, you have, you know, so general truth, there are black people are making different decisions at that time. Um, I still want to leave space and grace for, you know, the, the meager options for working class black folks. But at a point you wake up and you realize that this is antithetical to humanity. You got to make different and better decisions. So taking down Nola is not the first ones to challenge Zulu on this. They were challenged by the NAACP in the 40s. They were challenged by the, the groundswell of the black power and the civil rights movements in the 60s. Uh, great activist out there, O.C. Haley, had a whole lot to say about them. Um, and because of all of that voicing of protest, their membership dwindled down to 16. And eventually, um, when it started to ramp back up, it was um, said to be a lot of financing coming from the white rich ruling class of uptown white money that helped uh, monetize them back into uh, prominence. And so this stuff, again, is not happening by mistake. At the same time, when Louis Armstrong is doing that, it's like you said, uh, he was one of many jazz musicians who were being paid to go and uh, help propagate uh, U.S. imperialism by giving it a black face and through black art and our black labor and our blood, sweat and tears and the beauty that comes from it is used to sanitize the type of atrocities that they were about to perpetuate on all these black and brown countries around the world, the same way that Obama was used. And so the gist of it all is that, you know, there's none of this is by mistake. It is propaganda through art to present a certain face to the world because black people are the colonized people of the so-called first world that we should be in solidarity with all of our black and brown uh, siblings around the planet. And if they can misrepresent us and puppet string us into um, making it look like it's all good over here as we get reduced, to, like you said, the sample after they already vilify us as all the other archetypes, then, you know, black and brown people around the world that'll try to quell their resistance. But, um, you know, when we stand up and rise against that misrepresentation, that's when uh, we can build the necessary solidarity to, you know, knock back our oppression worldwide. Uhuru, and how also does that, represent the relationship between white merchants and the black petty bourgeois? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a ritual every year where um, the king of Rex, which is the uh, the white um, Mardi Gras crew, the biggest white Mardi Gras crew as Zulu is the biggest uh, black one. After the Zulu king, quote unquote, gets the, the keys to the city from the mayor, he closes out um, that ritual and then he goes and shakes hand with the king's that shakes hands with the King of Rex. Now, the, the, the Rex parade is so problematic symbolically that a lot of Black people don't even show up to it because they show you in their representation. They look like Klansmen, basically. And Black folks are so triggered by that, they don't go to that. But yet we go and parade with our own, um, you know, Black middle class and upper middle class through the Zulu who are throwing coconuts at us while they, you know, um, dancing grass skirts and what have you. Behind the scenes, what's represented socioeconomically is Zulu used to be, uh, like I said, longshoremen and, and working class, as they started to get monetized, as they started to bounce back. And even before that, um, it was transitioning into a more of a middle class, upper middle class um, echelon. It was, you know, in that in that crew, you have to pay at least 3000 to participate and be a part of it. And in a 53 percent and 53 percent impoverished city like New Orleans, that's not your working class black folks that get to be in Zulu. 
But just like Christmas, like Angela was saying, a lot of us will spend our hard-earned pennies to go to their ball and to try to play the part and be, you know, in the periphery of what looks like some kind of wealth. Meanwhile, um, Zulu themselves, like I said, they kowtow to the rich white woman class when they go and shake hands with these uh, people that look like Klansmen in a, a former Rex. But behind the scenes, what's happening with Rex and all of the white crews, and it has been happening for decades, all the way back to the beginning of Mardi Gras, is this is where a lot of the money elite of uh, white New Orleans gathers. And they don't just, you know, uh, celebrate and do their thing carnival-wise and, and Mardi Gras and all of that. Throughout the year, they're also in cahoots with one another, uh, forming business plans, business deals, what have you. This is the old plantation money that dominates and um, controls this, this uh, modern-day plantation. Um, to the point where one of our great ancestors, Dorothy May Taylor, who we highlight in our upcoming zine, she was a city councilwoman, activist, um, rooted in civil rights, and she was the one to campaign against them in the 80s to have Mardi Gras integrated because up until the 1980s, you know, you had to be on one side or the other, and there were only two black crews. And so she uh, campaigned for that successfully, and when she did it, um, it disturbed the white ruling class so much that two of those crews completely folded and their names were Momus and Comus. And these were crews that go all the way back to the 1880s. Um, it's even said that they were involved in um, satirizing one of our great ancestors, Oscar Grant, who was the first Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, first black Lieutenant Governor, uh, I believe in the United States. And he was rumored to have been murdered at the age of about 43 or so. And, you know, they used to dress up as him as a, as a gorilla in their um in their Mardi Gras ball. So again, the the representation and then what's happening behind the scenes go hand in hand. When you talk about these crews, you're talking about like the basically the secret societies that hold the keys to the kingdom um, in terms of finance and capital um in this city. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Angela Kinlaw and a, and a scribe called Quest. Just last week, the statue of Robert E. Lee was removed from the U.S. Capitol building where it stood for over 110 years. Tell us about your work with Take Em Down NOLA. One of the things that I'll say, you know, about our work with Take Em Down NOLA is that when we started this effort um, almost six years ago now, there were people who said to us that this work was not worthy, nor was it possible for us to see monuments like Robert E. Lee come down in our lifetime. Now, just for a little local context, the location where Robert E. Lee's monument was is in a place called Lee Circle, which is a center point for the routes during the Mardi Gras parade. So every um, parade, every um, band, all of our children who are parading in those bands, primarily black children, had to parade under the oppressive shadow of this monument, walking upon it each and every time, four hours during the daylight and uh, the flashy lights of the night during Mardi Gras, um, as a reminder of the place, right? where our children are to be, the same way in which we saw uh, children historically be required in the city of New Orleans to uh, bear flowers at the foot of the monument to John McDonough, one of the largest um, plantation 
owners and enslavers um, in the area. And so when we think about this work, um, we are enthusiastic about knowing that we've been able to see Robert E. Lee come down in our lifetime. And most recently, I've seen that same thing happen in D.C. When we started this work, we started it because, um, you know, the, the whole country was turning up for Mike Brown. And, um, you know, we wanted to use that as a moment to highlight the fact that, you know, uh, as the world was saying, or the country, at least at the time, was saying Black Lives Matter, we had to acknowledge the contradiction just the, the cognitive dissonance in a moment you're standing beneath this pillar to a person that said you were less than human and that, you know, we can uh, pull the documents, which we did, of Robert E. Lee uh, saying that, you know, Af that slavery was a necessary evil for the African savage to civilize them. And so um, we projected those words onto the pillar that held up Robert E. Lee. And so can we actually matter in a city where we are the Dominant population, 60%, and yet 53% of us are in poverty. Um, the, the greatest wage gap you can find in the country is between a black woman in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, and a white man's dollar. And when you talk about the incarceration rate, it's the number one in the world's history. You know, uh, we know the U.S. is number one in the, in the world. Louisiana has traditionally been number one in the U.S., and New Orleans is the reason for that as the number one in Louisiana. So we are the most policed in this modern-day plantation that we live in. And all of the, the ramifications of a plantation economy and a plantation culture and society still play out to this day in New Orleans. And so what we do to this day is uh, bi-monthly forums where we engage in political education publicly and bi-monthly actions where we gather in the street and continue in the fight. So if people want to get in contact with y'all, how can they reach you? The ways that people can um, keep up with what's happening with Take Them Down Null and get in contact with us is we're on all forms of social media. You can just type in Take Them Down NOLA. You know, our ultimate goal is to be in um, a place of collective liberation where, you know, as we are pursuing our own liberation um, through self-determination, that you know, our sovereignty, our ability to be liberated and free people does not have to come at the expense of, of other people and doesn't have to require exploitation and oppression of other people. So all power to the people. And as we say, our black lives won't matter until we have black power. You are listening to the People's War radio show produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Angela Kinlaw and a scribe called Quest. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. We can't take no more of this. Oh, yeah.